Father, we do want to worship you. Jesus, we worship you because you came. Father, we worship you because of your great love for us, which you have lavished on us. We praise you for the Holy Spirit who fills us and directs us. God, we thank you that you loved us even while we were sinners. And as we look at a message today where we're going to hear about sin and about our, our weakness, about where we were without you, I pray that we would remember how good you are. So help us now to understand your word and to live accordingly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're studying Romans 1 through 8 at Cornerstone. It's about a four-month-long sermon series that we're in the middle of here. And by the way, have you been reading this section of Scripture on your own? You will get so much more out of this study of Romans 1 through 8 if you are reading it on your own. So I just want to challenge you again to be doing that. Now, in this series, as I have said, eventually we will spend many, many weeks looking at the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what Romans 1 through 8 is really about But before we get there, and and before Paul gets there to the good news, Paul spent about two full chapters talking about the bad news. So that's where we are still now. We're at the end of chapter 2. We're going to get into the beginning of chapter 3 today. And in those chapters, as John Stott calls it, Paul gives a wide-ranging critique of the human race. In talking about the bad news, Paul leaves no one out. Eventually, in Romans 3, Paul's going to say things like, No one is righteous. And all have sinned. It was true of people that Paul was writing to. It's true of us on our own without God. And Paul's point in speaking in such great detail about the bad news is to remind us all that we desperately need a Savior. Now, in today's passage in the bad news, Paul's argument is directed squarely at Jews. Now, when I say that word Jews, let me give a little explanation here. We're talking, we're using that word as Paul used it 2,000 years ago. Remember, Jews were God's people. Those are the people to whom God gave his word and his promises and the covenants. Those are the people who were looking ahead to the Messiah and were supposed to recognize him when he came. They were supposed to recognize their need for a Savior. So that's who Paul is writing to. When, When we hear the word Jews, that's what we're supposed to think about. Now, previously in Romans when Paul had been talking about the Gentiles and their sin, and Gentiles are just simply non-Jews, so Jews were like God's people, and then Gentiles was everybody else. So when Paul was pointing his finger at the Gentiles, you could maybe hear some Jews saying, yeah, go get them, Paul. That's right, they're sinners. You tell them, Paul, way to go. But when he starts to turn the tables and point his finger at the Jews a little bit, maybe you can picture a Jew saying, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. Aren't we better off than those Gentiles? We're God's people. He gave us his law. He gave us the sign of circumcision. We are his people. Now as we go through our passage today, I want you to try to put yourself in in the sandals of a Jew 2,000 years ago. I want you to, to feel what it might have felt like to hear these words as Paul was talking to them. Now it's a little bit hard to do that for us because we're not Jews and most of you probably wore shoes. No, some of you wore sandals today. Okay, so you can, you're, you're doing good there. Um, I want you to think about us as religious people. 
Okay? Now, I know some people don't like that term religion, and, and I think it's helpful sometimes to make a distinction between religion and a relationship with God, and I'll do that today. Um, we, we must never substitute our religious actions, those things that we do, for a relationship with God. But at the same time, we do religious things. Other people would look at what we are doing today and would say, that's religion. And they're not wrong for saying that. It, it is a religious thing that we're doing. I'm going to try to make that distinction a little bit today, but at the same time, I want you all to understand that we do religious things. Okay? So as you're trying to put yourself in the sandals of a Jew 2,000 years ago, I want you to think about somebody who is very used to doing religious things, and perhaps because of those religious things they did, they thought that they had a right standing with God. That's that's the background for what we're, we're looking at. But I, I was struggling with this passage this week and, and trying to figure out why, why should we care? In 2014, Christians at Cornerstone Church, why should we care about what Paul had to say to Jews 2,000 years ago? Well, I think I came up with an answer. And I think the answer has to do with this. Even, even us today who, who know better we have a tendency to trust in our religious actions maybe a little bit more than we should. And that can be a really bad deal. And, and we'll get into that today. We, we must... It, I'm going to give you my big idea here. Um, my big idea, what I really want you to get from this sermon today. We must know where salvation does and doesn't come from. Okay? Well, we all agree that that's an important deal. That, that I don't want any single one of you to show up on Judgment Day and say, whoops, I did it wrong. And <laughs> even that phrase, I did it wrong, is the answer that somebody would give who is trying to earn their way to God. God tells us something different about where salvation comes from, and we need to know where salvation does and doesn't come from. Now, as I've said repeatedly, I think the main theme of Romans 1-8 through 8 is the Gospel. The Gospel is the message of salvation. It's, it's the message of good news that God gave to us about His Son, Jesus Christ, and how we can be saved through Him. It is not the gospel of being a good person or the gospel of doing religious things. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we need to know it. We need to know where salvation does and doesn't come from. So to help us understand this, we're going to look at Romans 2:17 through 3:8 today. It's kind of a long section. Um, but it, it went together in my mind, so I'm going to try to make it go together in your mind here today. And as I, I'm going to break this into two parts in my sermon, and in each part of my sermon, I'm going to ask a question about the value of religion. Okay? Now, some of you might be saying, value of religion? What are you talking about? Well, okay, bear with me. We're going to get there. Okay, but before we do that, just a, a real quick note. In this passage, it's like Paul's having an imaginary argument with somebody. And, and perhaps these are arguments that he came across as he shared the gospel with Jewish people and they reacted against him. Or, and I found this interesting when I read this this week, perhaps this was Paul's old views. Remember, he was like a, a religious Pharisee before he came to know Christ. So maybe it's Paul's old views versus Paul's new views in Christ. Okay. So let's get into it. Romans 2, we're going to start off with 17 through 29. And again, as I'm reading this, I want you to think how you might feel if you were a Jew 2,000 years ago hearing this. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, 
If you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, and you might be thinking to yourself, yeah, yeah, keep going, Paul. That's a pretty good description of who I am, yeah. Then Paul goes on, verse 21, You then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Hey, Paul, come on. Lighten up a little bit, right? He's starting to attack us. He goes on, verse 25. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. So my first question today about the value of religion is this. Isn't my religion good for something? Isn't my religion good for something? Now in verses 17 through 20, Paul gives this list of nine things that were, that were good things that were true, or at least supposed to be true, of Jews. Things like knowing God and his will and helping others know God's ways. But pretty quickly in verse 21, Paul asks some pointed questions. And the point of his questions is to ask these Jews if they're really doing the things that they said that they should be doing. Now perhaps Paul had some wicked Jews in mind, like people who were thieves and adulterers. Or maybe he's taking a page out of Jesus' book. Remember, Jesus talked about adultery and he said it's not just the physical act, it's also the, the lustful act that goes on in our minds. Or similarly, Malachi 3, in that, cha- in that chapter in the Old Testament, God basically called the Israelites thieves because they weren't giving a full tithe. So Paul is kind of making an argument against the Jews and their religion. In verse 23, he sums up this part of it and says, You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? It reminds me of what Paul has already said at the very beginning of chapter 2. Remember in those first three verses he talked about judging? And he said, those who judge, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, those who judge show that they know the difference between right and wrong. So if you know the difference between right and wrong, and then you do something wrong, you have proven that you are fit to be judged. Those who know the law should obey the law. Yet these Jews, like us, have a hard time obeying God. Anybody resonate with that a little bit? Have a hard time obeying God sometimes? And because of their disobedience, like it says in verse 24, God's name was blasphemed among the Gentiles. And what that means, if you're unfamiliar with that term blasphemy, so there were Jews who said they followed God's law. And then there were Gentiles who watched how these Jews lived, and they saw that the Jews didn't live according to what they said. And God got a bad reputation because of that. God's name was blasphemed. 
See, hypocrisy has always been a bad deal. I don't think there's ever been a time in the history of the world where people have enjoyed hypocrites. People who know God's ways should live according to God's ways. But let me stop here and fast forward 2,000 years. Are we at all like these Jews? Are we ever hypocrites? Yeah, unfortunately we are sometimes. And that saddens me, but it, it just happens sometimes. And then one other thing about the Jews that I think is similar for us, they had their checklist of things. Their, you know, hey, I'm this and I'm this and I'm this. We might have a checklist, although ours might be a little bit different than theirs. But, but let me give our checklist. You ever hear yourself saying this? I go to church. I prayed to receive Jesus. I got baptized. I go to Bible studies. I serve in my community. I serve in my church. I pray. I read my Bible. I even tithe. It's funny for me, as I was making that list, uh, thinking about all those things, I was actually kind of doing the same thing I felt the Jews were doing. Like, yeah, yeah, I, I do that. I do that. I'm pretty good. The danger is that we might trust, start trusting in those things instead of in Jesus Christ. Now, more on that in just a bit, but the danger is that the Jews thought that doing those things gave them a privileged position with God. But there's a danger in that, and I'll get back to that in just a little bit. But for now, let's, let's follow along with Paul's argument in verses 25 through 29. Not only could the Jews boast about having God's law, but also they could boast about circumcision. Now, if you don't know what circumcision is, uh, ask your parents. Um, that'll be a fun little conversation for you guys to have today. But um, it just simply, it was a, a cutting off of a piece of skin uh, for the males. Okay? So circumcision was something that God gave to the people. It was a sign of the covenant that he, gave, that he made with them. And it's easy to picture a Jew saying, hey, I'm circumcised. I am one of God's people. That's what that means. Now in verse 25, Paul acknowledged that circumcision has some value. Let me reread it. Circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. Circumcision was no guarantee of salvation. Circumcision was meant to be a sign of obedience. But it was never meant to be something that people could just say, yep, still circumcised, I'm still good. It was meant to be a sign, a reminder to them that they were to obey God. As Paul said in Galatians 5.3, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. In 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul speaks about circumcision, he reminded us that what's really important is keeping God's commands. So, back to Romans 2, someone who is physically circumcised, yet who breaks the law, has become as though he were uncircumcised. And then in the next two verses, Paul imagines a Gentile who isn't circumcised, but keeps God's law. And he says, that Gentile who's keeping the law could condemn you, a Jew, even though you're circumcised, because you break the law. Paul's argument, pretty much wherever he talks about it, is that circumcision cannot save. It can't save because circumcision signified obedience to the law. And listen to what Paul says at the end of the bad news, the very last verse of the bad news in Romans 3.20. Therefore, 
no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. So Paul said there's no hope in it. You can't just trust in your circumcision. And he goes on in verses 28 and 29. I want to reread them. Still talking about circumcision. He says, A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. Being a Jew is not an outward matter. It's not a matter of the flesh. It is a matter of the heart. And Paul mentioned in verse 29, circumcision of the heart. Paul didn't invent that phrase. He was borrowing it from the Old Testament. Several places in the Old Testament, it talks about this circumcision of the heart that was God's desire for the people. Not just an outward fleshly thing that man can do, but an inward thing in the heart that only God can do. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, this, this might be one that some of you might want to note. I love this verse. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants. Okay, so it's, it's God who's going to do this work. Why? Listen to this. This is great. So that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. Similarly, in Ezekiel chapter 36, God promised in the New Covenant to give a new heart to his people. We don't get a new heart by following rules. We don't gain a privileged position or standing with God by following requirements. Nobody can be saved through following the law. Salvation must come a different way. And Paul will tell us eventually that it comes by faith. And I know, even though we're talking about the bad news here, I couldn't help myself. I had to bring in the good news a little bit. And the good news is that anyone, whether we're talking Jew or Gentile, whether we're talking somebody who is brought up in a Christian home or an atheist, uh, whether you're circumcised or not, anyone can come to faith in Jesus Christ. And that is the only way of salvation. We don't earn our way to him by what we do. God gives salvation as a gift to us through Jesus Christ and our response is simply to put our faith in him. And the cool thing is, when we come to Christ through faith, you know what God does? He does that heart work inside of us that only he can do. He sends the Holy Spirit into our lives to change us, to to regenerate us, to wash us, to cleanse us. God does all of that. And that's where our salvation comes from. Now, if you've been a Christian for long enough, you've heard many times this idea that, that salvation comes only through faith in Christ. Yet, do you ever find yourself trying to earn God's favor through what you do? It is a dangerous thing. And again, that's why I say we need to know where salvation does and doesn't come from. It doesn't come from our religious actions. It comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, like I said, we also receive the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit becomes our seal, our sign of salvation. Now, a little theological side trip here. Some of you might be very interested in this. This one is kind of intriguing to me. The the Jews thought that circumcision was their physical sign of salvation. But it wasn't. Circumcision was meant to be a sign that they obeyed the law, that they had faith in God. And for us, we might look at things like our church attendance or our devotional life, and we might look at those as signs of our salvation, but they are not. 
The sign of salvation, according to Ephesians 1, is the Holy Spirit at work in our hearts. Did you know that? Now, if the Holy Spirit is at work in our hearts, it should show itself in outward actions, but we must never replace the actions with the thing itself, with the Holy Spirit. We must never look at our church attendance and say, I think God will let me into heaven because, you know, I've only missed a couple Sundays. Salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ. We need to know that. Okay? Now let me move on to my next section. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. Well, what if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result? Their condemnation is deserved. So my second point then, after talking about how our religion doesn't gain us a proper standing with God, the question is, is my religion then good for nothing? If religious actions aren't able to save us, then we might get this idea in our brains, well, it doesn't even matter then, so I might as well not even try. You know that whole checklist of things that we do? Well, if they're not going to make me righteous, why do them at all? Paul envisioned this response. And in verse 1, he asks if there is any advantage in being a Jew. If, if all these things that they did, you know, they don't earn them salvation, is there any advantage in being a Jew? And Paul quickly reminds us of their privileged position as the people who were given the words of God. So yes, being a Jew had its advantage. They had at their fingertips the word of God. In verse 3, though Paul, uh, Paul seems to think back to verse 2, okay, so, or to chapter 2. So they were given God's word, but in chapter 2, they weren't very faithful to it. So did that nullify God's faithfulness? Did the whole experiment fail as if God said, I'm going to give them my word and I hope it works, I hope they listen to me and I hope it changes them? And then he gave it to them and oh, whoops, they dropped the ball. Does that mean that, that God failed? No. Let God be true and every man a liar. Um, Paul uses King David as the example here and I think this is very helpful for us. He goes to Psalm 51. This might be one that some of you might want to go back and read later on today. In Psalm 51, we get this wonderful picture about the faithfulness of God and the unfaithfulness of people. Uh, if you remember, Psalm 51 was David talking to God after he had sinned. Some pretty big sins. Do you remember them? Adultery with Bathsheba. Killing Uriah. Those are two pretty big ones. He, he broke two of the Ten Commandments right there. And then David goes before God in Psalm 51. And his response was to be humble before God. David knew that he had sinned and he threw himself on the mercy of the judge. So if you read Psalm 51, you see this tender conversation between David and God. 
where David confesses his guilt and asks God to cleanse him. And I think Paul's argument here in Romans 3 is to say, that's what God's word is supposed to do. That yes, we are still going to sin sometimes, but when we sin, we go back to God and we ask him to forgive us. God's word leads us into what's right, and it had its intended effect in David after he sinned. The Jews were privileged to have God's word, and we have a high privilege. You could even say a higher privilege than Jews, because we have the New Testament now, and we know that the Messiah that they were waiting for has now come, and his name is Jesus. It is a high privilege that God has revealed himself to us through his word. And we should show that same humility that David showed. When we sin, we come before God. We ask him to cleanse us. We get to know God more and more through his word. And we let him do his work of transforming us from the inside. But having God's word isn't enough. We need to respond in faith. And the reason for that is because God is righteous in all he does, and including in judgment. And the Bible doesn't shy away from telling us this, that God is the judge. Paul says in here, certainly not, if that were so, how could God judge the world? Paul's response to this argument is basically, we already know that God is going to judge the world, and he's going to be perfectly just and right when he does it. So we know these things. And that should cause us to want to pursue God more. Although some people might say, hey, wait a second here. And Paul lists off these things here. Um, if, if I'm just a sinner anyways, and, and if no one can follow God's laws, what's the point of me even trying? In, starting in verse 5, there's these three things. People might say, my unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly. And then in verse 7, my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory. And then verse 8, let us do evil that good may result. In a warped way, I want you to picture two people having a theological conversation. And, and, and the warped Christian at the end of it says, you know what? God is going to receive glory through me one way or the other. Whether I sin and that means that he's either going to forgive me and he receives glory because of that, or he's going to punish me and he receives glory for that. So I guess it doesn't even matter what I do. Let us do evil that good may result. Now, most of us probably don't say it that way, but have you ever heard yourself saying, oh, it's not a big deal, I'll just do this and God will forgive me? Or God doesn't care all that much? Paul's answer to this kind of flawed logic is simple. He says, their condemnation is deserved. We shouldn't look at the righteous judge and say, oh, it doesn't matter how I live. No. We should look at the righteous judge who loves us and realize that he wants us to respond by faith to him. God receives more glory when I obey him than when I disobey him. Now, yes, we will fall short but in those times we should repent and throw ourselves in the mercy of the judge. And again, because he is a perfect and holy judge, we should seek to honor him by what we do. Now, back to my original question. I, I, I maybe haven't answered it yet in your minds. So here's the question. Is my religion good for nothing? Or let me rephrase it this way. 
Since we can't earn our way to God through religious actions, should we just give up trying to do what he says we should do? The answer, of course not. Of course we shouldn't give up trying. We should seek him all the more by faith. Now remember, we need to know where our salvation does and doesn't come from. So we do not earn our salvation by doing these good things that God asks us to do, but we're supposed to keep on doing them. You see, we're supposed to come to Jesus Christ by faith. That is the beginning of what we call a relationship with God. When we recognize that we are sinners and that we need salvation, we come to Jesus, he forgives us. That is the beginning of a relationship with God in which we are to continue for the rest of our lives by faith. And by faith, and here's where religion comes back in, by faith we're supposed to do those good things that God has called us to do. So that whole checklist of things I said, things like going to church, and praying and reading your Bible. Yes, we should be doing those things, but we do them how? By faith. And if we ever subtract faith from that equation, we have missed the deal. I want to give some concluding thoughts on this now because I feel like we need to kind of tie things together here and maybe roll it up into a nice neat little bowl that you can take home and, and play with later on today if you want to. Maybe that sounds weird, but anyways, it made sense to me. As I've mentioned, we are going to get into the good news soon. But before we get there, it helps us to understand what the bad news is. And, and for now, please know that part of the bad news is that we humans sometimes try to make it to God through religious effort and it doesn't work. It, it, it's not that it doesn't work because we can't try. Lots of people try. It's that it doesn't work because it won't work on Judgment Day. It's not an acceptable sacrifice to bring to God on Judgment Day, on judgment day to say to God, let me in because I did all this stuff for you. It doesn't work. God wants us to live by faith. So again, we start with faith and we continue with faith. And, and here's where religion comes back in. We do those things that we're supposed to do by faith. And like I said, if we subtract faith, we've missed it. Let me take one of those things from the checklist as an example. Tithing. Now, I've heard it said that pastors maybe shouldn't talk about money, but here we go. We're going to talk a little bit about money. God loves a cheerful giver. So that is to say that God loves it when we come before him as, and as an act of our worship and our obedience to him and our submission to him, we say, God, I want to give this to you. I want to join in with what you are doing across the world, so I give back to you what you have already blessed me with. God loves it when we do that. And it's not just simply then about giving money. And that's not what we're about here at Cornerstone Church. We're not just about taking your money. We are about worshiping God and one of the ways that we can do that is by giving cheerfully to Him. Or you can think about it in lots of other ways. Like, for example, serving in the nursery. We can do that by faith and say, God, you have blessed me with two hands and I can watch kids. And I can do that as part of my worship for you. And we do it not just because the pastor is twisting your arm, which this is about as close as I ever get to twisting anybody's arm, by the way, but... We don't do it because of that. We do it because we love God and we want to serve by faith. So in whatever religious action we're doing, we should keep with us an attitude of wanting to honor God. I, um, verse 23 was standing out to me. You brag about the law. You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? I want us to honor God by following him by faith. 
And then one more thing. We have been given many privileges. This passage mentions the privilege of God's Word and the Holy Spirit. Very soon, Paul is going to talk about Jesus Christ. So let me just mention those three things real quick. God sent His Son for us. What a privilege! He sent His Son to forgive us of our sins so that we could know Him and so that we could walk with Him. What a privilege. First um, John 2.6 Whoever claims to live in Him must walk as Jesus did. So we simply look to Jesus and walk like He did. Second, God gave us His Word. What a privilege. The God of the universe gave us His Word so that we could know Him and so that we could live according to His ways. Let's get to know Him. Let's meet with Him daily in His Word by faith, seeking to honor Him, by submitting to Him. And then God gave us the Holy Spirit. What a privilege. We cannot do the things that God has asked us to do by ourselves. We don't have the strength. But God gives us the Holy Spirit so that we can do what He wants us to do. So I implore you, like Paul did in Ephesians 5, be filled with the Spirit. That means you can ask God if you're struggling, if you're weak, which I know I am, you can say, please fill me with the Holy Spirit. We are blessed by God. He loves us and He wants us to know Him. Our part is to respond in faith to what He has revealed to us. We start by faith. We continue by faith. So I wonder then, as I finish this sermon, are there any of you out there who are trusting in your religious actions instead of in Jesus Christ for your salvation? Are you trusting in the fact that you go to church or that you pray or whatever else it might be and your list might look pretty impressive but I just have to ask are there any of you that are trusting in any of those things and not in Jesus Christ? He is the only way of salvation. I have talked to so many people throughout the years I've asked this question Why do you think you'll go to heaven when you die? And I have heard so many people say things like, I'm a pretty good person. Are any of you trusting in that? I don't want to see a show of hands here, but in your hearts, are any of you trusting in the fact that maybe you're just a little bit better than your neighbor or those people you see on the news who are doing terrible things? Do you think you're going to go to God and say, God, look what they did, and aren't I just a little better? It doesn't work that way. Or maybe some of you are thinking to yourself, yep, uh, if I do enough things, go to church, give enough, pray enough, read my Bible enough, those are all good things to do, but none of them will get you to heaven. It's only through faith in Jesus Christ. And we have to know that. We need to know where salvation does and doesn't come from. It doesn't come from our effort. We need to put our faith in Christ and keep walking with Him by faith. I want to pray now, and I want to first give any of you out there a chance, if, if you're thinking, maybe I have been trusting in myself, or in my religious actions. And, and I'm not here to say that you were evil for doing it, I'm just saying that we all kind of came into this world assuming that we were going to try to make our own way by ourselves. We have an enemy, Satan, who tries to deceive us into things. So if there are any of you out there who have not been trusting in Jesus Christ for your salvation, I want to pray a prayer right now that you can pray silently in your heart and talk to God to receive Jesus as Savior. So would you pray with me? 
Father, we thank you for your message of salvation, that you sent your Son, Jesus Christ. God, we come before you and we pray for forgiveness if we have trusted in ourselves. And if there's anyone in here today who has not yet received Jesus, we just come before you, God, right now and say, thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for his death on the cross for me. I now pray to receive Jesus Christ as my Savior, the one who takes away my sin. I confess that I am a sinner, that I have gone my own way. I now ask to receive Jesus as my Savior and also as my Lord, the one who is in control. I receive Jesus as King. I give my life to you, God. Please fill me with the Holy Spirit and help me to live the life you want me to live. And then, God, for all of us, we just come before you now and we acknowledge that that we are prone to trusting in these things that we do instead of you at times. And God, I pray that we would recognize if we ever do that and that we would quickly repent and come to you in faith. And God, I pray that with faith as the starting point, that we would do everything that you have asked us to do by faith. That we would honor you with what you have asked us to do. But God, may we always remember that it's not how we earn our way to you. We praise you that the way has been made for us by Jesus Christ. May we honor you by continuing to walk as he did. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.